0: Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck.
1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation. Beautiful, sunny, hot summer Los Angeles day. You know, we're going to talk about a subject today that I have never broached before, thought about it, but never really talked about it or looked into it, mainly because I don't know much about it, so I'm always up for educating myself and trying to educate others, but I really look forward to learning a lot today, and again, I want to warn you there might be some sensitive material, but I also want you to always remember these incredible resilient stories that have come out from my guests that I know we're going to have some more today, and information that I just thought we would you know bring to light, an issue that goes through our court system, let alone it feels like it gets neglected by the media and a lot of people don't even know about. And I really feel like we can be educated. And I know my guest today, who is a renowned advocate and the expert of the field of human trafficking. Unfortunately, we have to have this conversation, but we have heroes like my Guest today, who uh, I can't wait to talk to on success stories that he has been so passionate about. He obtained a degree from BYU in Idaho. Studied the subject at Vanguard University. He has tirelessly worked to combat human trafficking in over thirty countries, dedicating his efforts to making a difference in lives of countless individuals, not only in the U.S. but in Latin America and pretty much in those thirty countries, which is quite impressive. Been featured in the New York Times, Yahoo News, to name a few places. And he's also received international recognition, medals of honor, Colombia, presidential recognition in Guatemala, a prestigious honor from the government, Colombia, for his work. He is the founder of LiberTaris, if I'm saying that correctly. I'm not sure I am, but we'll talk about that. International, it's a nonprofit. And today, I want to welcome Tyler Schwab. Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me on. This podcast.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I feel honored to be on this podcast and sharing this space to talk about some of these amazing individuals that I'm blessed to work with.
1: So, we're going to start off obviously the formats trauma trial transformation. I, you know, we we like to get into the courtroom section of this, but um, I, I first, as I met you recently and gone through some of your subject matter. I'm asking myself, why am I so naive to this subject and, and why is this subject barely at the forefront of our media or why do why do you think we turned a blind eye to this?
2: Well, it, it's interesting, like you, you, you brought up like the format for your podcast and the first word you used is trauma. It's, it's traumatizing for even people that have to read about it, that have to hear about it. It is the darkest part of our society, you know, children being sold for sex, children being sold for labor, children being exploited. It's not something that's easy to approach, even for you know us 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 people that maybe consider ourselves advocates or or um, informed on the news. It's not easy to read about. It's not easy to think about. It's not easy to work in this industry. And so, working mm-hmm. in it, hearing about it, you have to sacrifice a little bit of your innocence to even be exposed to some of the stories that that that's happening. You know, right here in our community, and it's traumatizing. I think for even the population um, in general, it's easier sometimes yeah. to turn away versus actually look in and then to see what's actually happening.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because one thing that I've found so interesting was, you know, we, we had this whole, what they wanted to call the epidemic of drugs and it got so much news and lawsuits and, you know, opioid, you know, the opioid crisis. And yet here's a crisis right in front of us that I just feel like, wow, it's, it's sad to, to hear that teens are dying from drugs. And it's, why aren't we placing that importance on children who are, you know, being trafficked? I just, I, I'm struggling with that a little bit. Maybe you could help me with that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a dark part of our society. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. I think it's happening closer than, than a lot of us would like to admit. You know, Libertas International, we work uh, around Latin America, mainly in Dominican Republic, Colombia, Guatemala, the countries that you, they mentioned in the intro, But there are amazing groups that are working right here domestically as well. I mean, the story that, you know, that we had talked about on the phone involves a little girl in Salt Lake City. And when people think of Salt Lake, I don't think that they think it's like, you know, it's not like a Chicago. It's not like a an L.A. It's not a it's not a city where it's in the news a lot because of the violence. But there's this hidden epidemic of violence that by Mm -hmm. its nature is is fairly hidden. And so uh, if if people don't want to know about it because they're not looking. And they don't want to hear about it because it's so ugly. There's another part of the population that maybe want to know about it, but because it's such a hidden crime that Mm. they don't get to talk about it because it's so hidden.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I was looking up statistics we're gonna talk about here in a few minutes, but I was shocked at the percentages of different states you would not expect in the United States that have trafficking. But you know, how does someone fall into it? Is it an education issue? Is it a um, income issue, or is it a is it a cultural issue? How does someone fall into trafficking?
2: You know that's such an interesting question because each case is so different. I can say what it usually doesn't happen is the hard kidnappings. Um, I think with a lot of media, they portray a lot of these individuals as being physically kidnapped and taken from maybe California to Maine or California to Nevada or something like that. Mm-hmm. That can happen, but it's definitely not the norm. Because you kidnappers, traffickers, they kick up a lot of dust when they kidnap somebody. It ends up in the news, mm-hmm. ends up in the, it ends up in the media, and traffickers mm-hmm. don't want that. They would much rather um, they would much rather have, like for example, a case that we see a lot um, here in the States is, uh, it's called a Romeo pimp. Where a pimp who's maybe in his mid-20s, early 30s, mm-hmm. will make a 17, 16-year-old girl fall in love with him. And then she runs away from home, or he convinces her to leave home. The home's already dysfunctional, and then he takes her and exploits her. But she's mm-hmm. a she's a victim that no one's looking for, which mm-hmm. is perfect for him because if no one's looking for her, it's very it's very unlikely that someone's going to recognize her from the news or from the media. And so it's more of a, a forced fraud and coercion versus a hard mm-hmm. kidnapping. There is the mm-hmm. force that happens, but more often than not, especially in the United States, it's fraud and coercion of how these people end up in these trafficking situations.
1: Yeah, and I think we learned as in in the media, finally, with the Epstein um, scenario, how that can happen. And these younger girls who have come out and said, I don't know how it happened, but it, it happened to me. And I found that to be so fascinating. I'm hoping to talk to a few of those, of those girls on just their their healing process, which we'll talk about. But, you know, your website, you have a really great phrase. It says, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you didn't know. What What do you mean by that? That was such a powerful phrase to me.
2: Yeah, I think that quote is taken from uh, William Wilberforce, who was the first abolitionist in London. And, you know, he had this thing where slavery at that time was fairly common. It was fairly accepted, um, except for um, a certain party during that time. And so what he would do is he would... Have donors. He would have uh, politicians. Have influential people get exposed to the slave ships. What they smelled like. What they looked like. The situations of the people, and just the the horrific conditions and the horrific violence that humanity was perpetrating on itself. And then he would say, "You can choose. Look the other way now. It's in your court. But you can never again say you didn't know what this looked like, mm. what it smelled like, what it, what it feels like." And we. That's why I think podcasts like this are so important of raising awareness to where. You give the platform for someone like me, who has all these stories of all these amazing, brave little girls and boys that I'm working with, to share with the world what exactly is happening and how there's statistically more slaves right now in 2023 than at any time during the transatlantic slave trade. And knowing that, that there's more slaves now, people can choose you to look the other way, but they, they will know that our world is littered with slavery, with violence and this epidemic of exploitation, and, uh, you know, there's a quote that I also like that I haven't put on my website yet. It's, slavery has never been more prevalent in the in human history, but it's also never been more stoppable in mm. human history. We have the tools, we have the technology, we have the laws to be able to put a stop to this. It's just a lot that we're missing the manpower and the financial resources to be able to put an end to this.
1: Right, right. You know, um, the main purpose of this podcast is not only to bring light to subjects like this, but it's also to talk about how to go to trial, how, how to be in front of another person. Well, let's say, you know, we'll talk about the, the transformation side in a minute. But, you know, you know, I assume that, you know, people get caught, then you have perpetrators that, you know, have to go to trial. And um, how do you help a victim be able to really prepare to go into a courtroom and testify after something like this?
2: You know, it's a really good question because we have a we have a strategy that we use to uh, help train victims, help prepare survivors for their time in court. But my the my most successful case is actually when the victim totally disregarded what I had to say. And she actually Mm. used the courtroom to uh, to her advantage. She used her personality to her her advantage because it is a very traumatic process. And yet we're lucky enough. We at Libertas International, we invest a lot on the justice side. Where we believe that's actually the best prevention, where if you mm-hmm. can make these guys accountable, take their money, take their freedom, and publish it all over the media, that actually will defer other people from actually going and committing the same crime. And if especially like in this in the social media age, so much of the abuse is filmed, uploaded to where it's almost impossible to plead not guilty because mm-hmm. all the evidence is there. But every now and again we do have um these guys that, and these women too, that will plead not guilty and will fight uh, in court. And in that aspect, you know, we, we help prepare the survivors in a couple of different ways. Um, You know, during, during the court process, we always make sure that uh, the survivor is sitting behind if she chooses to watch the whole trial behind people to where she can hear what's going on, but the perpetrator can't necessarily have eye access to her Mm -hmm. Uh, because you don't have, you don't have to say anything to be threatening. Life. You can uh, just the look can be exactly. a threat and because of the relationship between oftentimes trafficker and victim uh there's even after the arrest and after the uh, during a prosecution there may be a lot of intimacy there still and so that's one way that we can help shield them from any kind of um visual intimidation is having them sit behind like a bigger gentleman in the courtroom um mm-hmm. we help prepare by even like what they dress to wear um to even help when they go up on the stand to look more like the little girl that they are uh, mm-hmm. to dress the way that that portrays youth that shows the jury because that's who we have to convince is the jury that this wasn't a troubled teen or this wasn't a girl who was maybe 16 in age but had a 20 year old personality that this is a little girl that these guys abused uh, and then just um emotional grounding techniques to where it, you know, one that one that helps me even when I'm in court is just to feel your feet on the ground, to mm. count to ten and to visualize every single one of your toes that hits the ground, and it helps ground you in the moment versus allowing your mind to go elsewhere. So we have we have certain techniques that we do uh, to help prepare a survivor emotionally and physically for those moments uh, in trial.
1: That's great. You know, I um I'm just uploaded actually just this last week a series of what I call self guided legal meditations. And I've been excited to talk to you about this because, um they're literally meditations with music and sound that actually walk you through the process of what it's like to either be in the courtroom, what it's like to either be prepping for your deposition, prepping to take the stand, cross examinations. So it was like four or five of them I finished up. and do you do you see like tools like that 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 does that actually help them? Like, and I'm just not saying the meditations, but I mean, to keep them grounded. To you know, really, because a lot of times I see too where they, they'll bring, uh, and I'm not saying your particular type of cases, but a, a witness will come in. They've prepped them on the facts. They're not emotionally prepped. Do you work on that emotional side of it as well as just the factual side?
2: Yeah, I feel like the emotional part is almost more important to where you have to mm-hmm. not because that's what the defense is really trying to do is get inside these people's heads to make them confused mm-hmm. to make them. Say things that maybe they have to take back or that they can recall upon to make them nervous to make them crack. you know, we had a case um, you know, in Salt Lake City where um there was this awful awful case of this little girl who was abused by her uncle in a very traumatic way, his uncle and some friends, and she was on the stand for I think three and a half hours, mm. and she just broke. she she, mm-hmm. she just said, you know what I lied I'm done i I, I lied about it i I, I don't want to go forward with this. I just want to be done. And, you know, that, that the, the trial essentially ended right there because she admitted on the stand that she was lying. And those that, you know, have trauma training or trauma informed know after working with this survivor, mm-hmm. that she wasn't lying. But in this state where she was in on the stand, mm-hmm. she, after being there for so long and having to recount all these horrific details of her abuse, she just had enough. And the Backed way down. that she got stopped was her was to just say that she lied. And then that's when it ended. Yep. Unfortunately that guy Get walked out. free, and um, so like that you 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 meant you bring up a good point like the emotional aspect is so important and and uh, we do that with all of our survivors even now like I'll, I can tell a story like whenever you're ready of when a survivor disregarded what we had trained her to do and end up going really well for everybody um, and we should have yeah, known tell me, this,
1: just, tell me yeah tell me the story tell me yeah okay, story.
2: Tell okay so. So a few years back, we had this, um, we had this, uh, aunt and uncle who came into my office and they had this 14 year old little girl with them. And she's just, uh, she was like one of those like uh, punk kids that you would find like a hot topic. Like she had like the Metallica shirt on and just very mm-hmm. quiet, very small. And aunt and uncle were telling me about the horrific abuse that she had suffered, uh, from this man in, in Salt Lake city named, uh, Philip Grenier. Um, you can look him up. He's, he's been in jail now, um, for a long time, but, uh, this man essentially uh, abused this little girl, raped her, filmed all the abuse, and then uploaded to different uh, mm-hmm. pornography sites uh, to make mm-hmm. money. And this guy, he he denied it the whole way. He's like, nope, not true. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And so after, you know, two years of this legal process, which is, you know, another thing that's um, mm-hmm. that, that, the, that length. Yeah, the length of it, we finally mm-hmm. got to trial. And we we sat down with this girl. We were prepping her on all the different things that we had prepped her to do um you know for one the emotional side of it the most important because she's she's one of my favorite kids in the whole she, she probably is actually my fa- i shouldn't have favorites but she's probably my favorite she uh <laughs> she just has the little she she's 16 and she had a little attitude and we were telling her of like you can't like, just try to control that attitude because on the on the stand it may not come off so good and you have to you have to convince the jurors and she's like okay 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 that sounds good uh, you know dress up very nice to you want you, we want to, want to make sure that the jury knows that you're only 16 years old she's like okay 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 and so we had um we had all this prep that usually works for us um, in this instance in these trials and she went she was it was her turn to get cross examined she went on the stand and and the defense somehow they had got access to her original statement where she first disclosed her abuse when she was 10 years old And he was going to show that in the courtroom. He's going to make her relive that, and then count how many times she giggled during her interview. He goes Mm -hmm. up, you know, very, you know, you know how these defense attorneys are—they go up and they're very Mm -hmm. arrogant, just like this girl is lying, and I'm going to prove it because I'm going to show how many times she giggled during this interview that's three hours long, and we're going to tally how many times that she giggled because she thinks it's just a big joke. She thinks Mm -hmm. ruining this guy's life is a big joke. I'm going to prove to you all that because she's laughing that uh that she's a liar and that he deserves to uh, this trafficker deserves to go free
1: Mm.
2: and so he turned on the video he turned on the video and and this little uh 16 year old girl because she was still small had to watch herself being interviewed by this um and you know the interview started out very poor anyway because when she was 10 she asked for a female person to interview her and they refused to give that to her because there was no female interviewers on staff that day it was just a male. And so she already felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So the guy pulls out this whiteboard and, um, and she's giving her statement um, about the abuse that this man inflicted on her. And he would pause it every time that she giggled or she looked at the camera and he would ask her, he'd be like, did you giggle there? Did you laugh? And she would have to say, you know, yeah, I, I giggled there. Mm-hmm. And so then he would mark down a check mark and he was like, okay, we can keep going. He would press mm-hmm. play, another 40 seconds would pass. He would pause again and he would mm. say, Did you laugh there? And she's just, she's just like this. You know, she's just got her hands on her head and she's just like, Yeah, I think I laughed there. And the tension in the courtroom was awful because the jurors had to watch this, this mm. video for 15 minutes. Uh myself as like her caseworker. I had to, I was just sick, just sick watching this because it made me just so just so physically ill that she had to relive this experience and that she mm-hmm. had to answer yes to, of, of, of like yes i giggled there without being able to defend herself like i was giggling because and f- uh, about that went on for about half an hour so we were only you know a, a, mm-hmm. not even halfway through this video and she had just had enough like you could see i could see in her face and i was like oh no like something's gonna happen like her attitude just started to swell up like that personality that she has started to come to the forefront and everything that i had taught her she threw out the window and oh, she wow. It's such an it's such a beautiful moment because she. I'll, 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 t- I'll keep doing the story. I won't spoil anything for you, but she. We were watching the video and she she says, "Hey, pause it there," and the defense attorney paused it and she was like, I, "I giggled there, but you missed it. So put down a check mark." And so he was like, "Okay, I'm taking your word for it." Puts down a check mark. He keeps well, we keep watching the video, and he pauses it and he he asked her, "Did you laugh there?" And she was like, "No, I don't think I did." Like I giggled, but I didn't. I wasn't full laughter yet. You got to know the difference between a giggle and a laugh. And he was like, "Okay, <laughs> this is your interview. Like, all you're in control." And at this point, all of us were like, "What is she doing? What right. is she, she doing?" And what, what was what was um, unknown to us at the time is that she was taking control of her interview of this cross examination by using her personality and her snarkiness to her advantage. Hmm. And so then she she would pause. She would pause the video on her own. She's like, "Hey, pause it there." He would pause, and you know, she did get a little personal, which I think the judge did get did get after her for, because mm-hmm. the defense attorney was maybe in his mid seventies, and she was like, "I know you're an old attorney, but you missed me." Giggle, I laughed. It was a full giggle. So you put down two check marks, please. And oh, so wow. he was like, "Okay, like you did this." So he put down the two check marks. And during this process, she turned the whole thing in, in almost into a game, to where like the whole courtroom just became. It was like the whole courtroom was just tense and like flexing their muscles. And when she turned it into like a game that a 16-year-old would play, the whole courtroom was just like, oh, like, oh my gosh. Like, thank goodness. Like, saw this isn't her, a tense they course.
1: saw her as a 16-year-old at that point?
2: Yes. They saw her as a 16-year-old like, girl. They, she's
1: playing a game. She's playing a game
2: because yeah. this, this is how she's dealing with this moment. And it also humanized the video for the people watching this of like, of course she's going to giggle. Like this is her defense mechanism when she was 10 and totally. she's playing a game now because this is her defense mechanism when she's 16. Yeah, And it just kept going along like this to where like even people in the audience on our side start to laugh because she had taken full control. She was totally in her element. She was 100% herself and using her feisty, spunky punk personality to her advantage to help lessen this moment and take control of this incredibly intimate, incredibly traumatizing cross-examination to mm. where the attorney halfway through the video, he quit because he was like, I think you guys get the idea. She was laughing. There's no need to go on any further because she he had 15 minutes where he was winning and then an hour where she was essentially playing a game with him and this attempt that he had to try to discredit her story. Where he just gave up halfway through. And he was like, I'm losing this fight. The more this girl speaks, the more people see her as a 16 year old kid, and the more they don't like me for yeah. showing this video. And so he quit halfway through. And and I've never, even still knowing her for seven, eight years, I've never seen her so confident when she walked out of that courtroom and she was like, I feel great. I was in 100% wow. control. I felt good about how that went. And she was asking me, she was like, Did I do well? And I, just speechless i was like oh my gosh thank you so i never thanked anybody for doing this but thank you so much for teaching everything that i've taught you and throwing it out the window because right. you using your talent and using your those natural gifts that you have you completely flipped that cross-examination to where it was tense it was traumatic it was incredibly difficult for 15 minutes and the last hour you turned into a game to where people saw you this 16 year old girl is kind of messing with this guy and it's funny it turned into yeah. like almost comedy show versus this tense tense situation and and it end up winning i think in my opinion winning her the the trial okay the because yeah. the, uh, the next day the jury deliberated for all of like an hour and a half and they came back with their verdict
1: wow that's uh you know that's intuition right i mean that's also a strong powerful way of looking at it being your authentic self on the stand which is you know, always very hard to do. I mean, I've been to Post myself and it's, you know, you're trying not to have all your guard up. You're trying to be authentic. But I, I would think it might be a little bit easier at times for a kid because of being so innocent versus, you know, so that's, you know, I, I love those kind of stories because it's um, it's why we do have a court system. It's why we, as hard as it can be, it can be positive. Um, but, you know, do you, do you have victims that ever like, Um, Or do you have a lot of cases that go to trial?
2: I don't have a lot of cases that go to trial. It happens maybe once every two years because a lot of these guys are pleading guilty. Guilty. uh, And with a lot of cases that I work in Latin America, this case I just shared, it was one of those rare cases where a case that I worked here in the States. But Mm -hmm. a lot of my cases involve American citizens traveling to Latin America and abusing kids in Latin America Mm -hmm. and then coming home. Wow. And so usually those guys get arrested here and then are placed in the court system here. And by that time they, they've got the chats, they've got the uploads that these guys really don't have a lot of ways to deny what they did. We get a few that still plead, not guilty, mm-hmm. but most of the time they do, they do plead guilty and we do not have right. to go to trial. And usually I think there's some, um, there's some, um, I don't know. The wiggle room is not the right word. It's, um, some kind of compromise or like they they will um, the word is blanking me i apologize um, but they'll 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 the the DOJ will convince them to plea in exchange yeah. for maybe like one for of the being charges. a
1: witness sure yes yeah
2: and so that's uh that's what we see up a, a lot is people that maybe are looking at 30 year sentences take a plea deal and right. uh, don't go to trial in exchange for serving you know 22 to 25
1: right to become a witness in that and so you know, it was interesting I, as I was. Um, you know, I what what type of court takes a case like this? Is it family court or just superior court, criminal court?
2: You know, um, the case I just mentioned, it was. Um, it started out in family court and then ended up um, in in federal court because it, federal w- court. Ed- it ended up being a federal crime because of the. Mm. Some of the case that we work with the filming of the abuse. Uh, we call it sexual. Yeah. Um, CSAM, a child abuse material, formerly mm-hmm. known as child pornography cases. And the court system, they still use the term child pornography. So that's a more that's a term that most people understand. And when it gets to that point, it ends up at the federal level to right. where they go to the federal court. And you know, I always um we we prep the survivors as well, because a lot of these survivors, they if they plead not guilty, they go into the witness stand, they're cross-examined. But if they plead guilty, they also have a chance to say something at the sentencing mm-hmm. hearing. Right. And It's, you know, the, the core system, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but I would say it is something very, I would almost use the word spiritual to where Hmm. you go in there and, and it's, it's quiet. Um, These people come in and then, you know, a judge and decides what the next 15 to 25 years of this person's life looks like that's committed this crime. And it provides a lot of healing for these survivors to almost like a surreal experience to where it's, it's how the justice system was first set up to work, evening the odds for the most vulnerable, but among us. And mm-hmm. it's it's something very beautiful. And I'm, I'm very appreciative that the court system allows survivors to speak at trial. And also mm-hmm. when there's no trial and there's just a sentencing, I think it's a very surreal and healing experience for a lot of them.
1: Yeah, I've seen that happen a lot, actually. And I think probably the one that most everybody knows about were the gymnasts who were able to come and... You know, speak to Larry Nasser and really tell them what they thought and how it is a very healing thing to be able to get that off your chest because I you know i I also was reading, which I was pretty stunned, that the u s. leads the world in consumption. that That is so unbelievable to me. I mean, is that where do you think that comes from? I mean, it's just it's all fifty states. It's not like it's one particular area. It's just this is such a staggering statistic.
2: Yeah, it's it's really I don't know what it is. I just I think the U.S. as a whole has an addiction problem because like when I'm when I'm in Colombia, you know, Colombia, a lot of people from my parents' generation know Colombia is the is the uh, the Pablo Escobar, the narco terrorism. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't it wasn't Colombian dollars that were funding narco terrorism. It was the consumption of cocaine in Miami, L.A., and New York. Right. They were funding mm-hmm. that terrorism. And now like a place like Columbia continues to suffer because the United States has, I think, a sex addiction problem to where they get some of the worst of, of the addicts that, that we have that are addicted to sex. And even like, you know, we're 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 where the you know your podcast is based down in California our team just took down a guy from california his name is orion deb you can google him he's, he's all he's all over the news He was a crypto fund manager from la that will they would travel down to columbia and he would traffic girls that had he had four requisites for them to be trafficked by him and abused by him mm. uh, no father no scars no tattoos and no breasts that's how he liked them and so our team you know cares for those survivors help prepare them for their original statement to police officers so that Orion couldn't mm-hmm. get arrested in Colombia and then spend the next 15 to 25 in Colombian jail before he gets extradited to the United States to serve his time up oh. here. Wow. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a U.S. thing. Like it, the guy mm-hmm. came from the United States and the U S does consume a lot of this material. It can, and they're wow. the ones that are traveling, um, to mm-hmm. Colombia, Dominican Republic, to abuse these kids. But also, we see like we we see people from LA, uh, we mm-hmm. see people from Salt Lake, we people see people from Cheyenne that maybe aren't traveling overseas to abuse kids. They're traveling to the trailer parks. They're traveling mm-hmm. to the bad town where maybe there's more economically vulnerable children to abuse uh, over there. So it's it is. Yeah. I don't know what the United States has. Why it's so addicted to this, but consistently every year when those rankings come out, it's it's the Americans that are one of the largest consumers and producers of child abuse material.
1: Yeah, that was really incredible. But it was interesting because, I mean, looking at the labor side of it, I was also looking at that side, I was very shocked to see uh, things like landscape service, construction, restaurants, Arts and entertainment, uh, scientific and technical services, forestry. I was just like, wow, that that to me was also just surprising. I, it's that's uh, just not something I think most people would even think twice about, you know?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you you mentioned that too, and you gave a name to those because those are really those cases are really hard to prove in court because they don't get a lot of sympathy because the migration and and um, and the border gets politicized so often, but a lot of Predators are on those borders looking for vulnerable men, boys, women that they can then exploit in the labor market. Um, Mm -hmm. And labor trafficking survivors don't get near as much compassion as sex trafficking survivors do. And Mm -hmm. I say this, you know, someone that works almost exclusively with sex trafficking survivors, because when you put up in court, you know, a 16 year old little girl who was sold five times a day versus a Guatemalan migrant who had to work 22 hours a day for 50 cents on the dollar. This one is still going to get way more compassion than this one because so many aspects of a labor trafficking survivor may have been politicized um, or he's he's an adult male, so he gets less compassion. And in this whole fight of human trafficking, the populations, it, the victims, labor trafficking survivors are definitely the underdogs in that yeah. fight because they generally get less compassion. So I appreciate just even yeah, you I can... yeah on our podcast in the, on this podcast yeah
1: I can totally see that I, I can totally see that because it's you know there's just so much mixed messages on immigration and you know what people were why people want to come to the states and you know there's just just so much out there it's hard to kind of come through but when you see something like that it's like you know um, it, it just I don't know that blew my mind I was like arts and entertainment it's like who's trafficking arts and entertainment it's just so strange but I want to talk about the you know it's obviously a, a very heavy subject and you know there's so many, the the transformation side of someone coming through this process. Um, I love on your website, you say prevent, recover, empower. Can you, in in real short, we don't have a whole lot of time to explain what you, what, how you do that.
2: Yeah. On the, on the, on the empower or all three,
1: all three prevent. How do you prevent? That's a good question.
2: The, the prevention, I will, I will put that on at the end because I think that the prevention comes after the the next two. In my personal opinion, people will vary like vary on this opinion. But the uh, the recover, you know, we we have very good ties with U.S. embassies across the world, across Latin America, with vetted police units. We we vet them out really well, and these police officers they want to do more to rescue and recover victims, but maybe just don't have the funding to do so, and so mm-hmm. we'll help. Supplement some of that those funding needs so that law enforcement doesn't have to wonder how they're going to get two hundred bucks to go do this rescue. They can count on it from us and go and rescue those you know those three girls that are trapped inside a brothel, for example. A case that just happened a couple of weeks ago. That's how we recover victims. Empower survivors. This will always be our flagship. Is always the most important. Is when mm-hmm. a survivor is removed from their trafficker and they're 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 seeking justice. What do they do in the meantime? How can they heal from what's happened? How do they get their right. the sed treated? How do they how do they get their tattoos removed? How do they catch up in school? How do they start a business? That's what we really invest on is to make sure that we don't have to rescue this survivor again. That she's empowered enough right. to make a life for herself or himself to create something beautiful after after what's happened to them. And on, on the prevention side, when these guys are arrested we we publish their face everywhere we have contacts with local media we share it with bbc with cnn with yahoo with the new york times we work really hard to make sure that they spend the most amount of time in jail and then we take all their stuff there's a very important aspect of the justice process called restitution where we work with the department of justice to look at their assets. And take all they've got, re- give it back to the victims, reimburse the nonprofit for the therapy that we've given, the sed treatment that we've that we've paid for, to make it a financial cost as well. So when people read these articles of like, oh my gosh, Orion Depp from California, he's been sentenced to 25 years in jail. His face is all over the news as a pedophile, and they took 200 thousand dollars from him. This crime is has now become too costly to participate in because if that, those are the consequences. I I would want no part of any of this. Right. And that's the best way I we feel to prevent this crime is to really go after the bad guys hard and make these bad mm-hmm. guys famous for all the work for all the the wrong reasons.
1: Yeah, that's I think why Epstein ended up where Epstein ended up, you know, it was just that it had to be uh put out there like in mass for sure, but you know, um how do how does one like I I've been in airports before right and i've seen the sometimes in the bathrooms they'll have like you know are you being trafficked or do you see anyone how would one pick up on that that was something i was thinking about over the weekend too it's like how would i know like how how would i even suspect as just a common person going through day-to-day
2: yeah well i would recommend you know the there's a lot of free trainings online to to get trained on what exactly human trafficking looks like um So knowing kind of what to look for, if you're looking for like people that are taking and shipping containers to different countries, you probably aren't going to know exactly what it looks like Mm -hmm. when it's right under your nose. But like, there's certain things that, you know, like if, if if a, if a 12 year old girl is paying for something in cash, that's weird because it's a, it's Mm -hmm. now a cash society, but this crime. There's still a lot of cash. It goes through this crime. Mm -hmm. So if a kid, especially a girl has an obscene amount of cash, that's a sign that usually something is happening um, depression, um, schoolwork that's in decline, like that's usually a good sign that something is happening. But then if, if there's, if there's a situation that doesn't feel right in your gut, and let's say there's an adult that's speaking exclusively for a child that he's with, that's usually a sign that that adult is preventing that child from saying something that might get him in trouble. And so Mm -hmm. we see a lot of cases that are reported that way, where an airport worker or a gas station owner encounters a situation of trafficking where they'll, they'll ask a victim a question and the perpetrator will answer for them and makes some mm-hmm. excuse why this person can't answer. That's a pretty, sh- that's a pretty sure sign that that person is being exploited. Um, wow. When they're not allowed to speak for themselves. And right. one more bits that I'm seeing more often too, especially like in the, in places like Vegas um, and in Colombia as well, is a, a branding tattoo. These traffickers are cruel. They're, they are, they do manipulate psychologically and a lot of ways to reinforce on mm-hmm. a victim that they are property is you either tattoo someone's initials, their logo, or even like a uh, a barcode on their body to let them know that they are the property of the person that's exploiting them.
1: Oh, wow. 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 That That's a good way to look for it. It's sadly enough that, that, that would even be an option, but it's, um, you know, I, I also, you know, most of the language that I was looking at, too, like when I was looking up over the weekend, uh, like some government stuff, the language was so unrelatable. I was like, I just wanted somebody to tell me something simple. So thanks for that explanation, because I was sort of like, it was in big words. And I'm like, I don't know what this means. I mean, and I'm pretty smart, so I didn't think the average person would really understand. So that's a good way to start looking for it. But does the government fund programs, like, um, number one, the to... Recover and do they also to you know empower and and help heal? Is are government funded programs as well as nonprofits?
2: Yeah, there there is government funding available. It's sometimes hard to access, and depending on the administration, it may go. To, they may give a lot to like a certain agency that somebody knows really well. Like the funding doesn't always get, in my opinion, distributed to the groups that are making the biggest impact. But it is it is there that, that people can take advantage of. Um. But I, I would say the government, the, the the agency that I work the most with is probably the Department of Homeland Security. Hmm. They're the ones that I've seen that are most proactive in going after these these criminals. They're the ones that are um, most aggressively prosecuting the, these criminals. Like there's un- – unfortunately, like for us, like when we work with Homeland Security on a case, it's, it's, a, if it's a case where – like I'll just be honest. Like the, the cases that we work at Libertas International – Um, a really high profile cases for a lot of different agents. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, when we work these cases with our Homeland Security partners, what it usually means for our partners is they get promoted because it gets a Mm -hmm. lot of positive attention. It gets a lot of um, it gets a lot of notoriety. Like there's a case in um, Austin, Texas that we worked last year. We call it project bat bridge where an American school teacher from uh, Austin, Texas was trafficking three girls in Columbia and Mm -hmm. This case made the career for a lot of people in the office in Austin. And for us, this is what we see every 28 days on average of a case like this of an American man trafficking girls in Latin America. And so we lose these trusted relationships, these trusted partners, and it gets really sad. But I would say the Department of Homeland Security really does a good job of going after these guys in a really aggressive way. Um, On the federal level, they're always uh, really good to work with. And the Department of Justice, we get some... Attorneys that are more trauma informed than others, but mm-hmm. when you get a good Department of Justice attorney, I know the mm-hmm. Department of Justice gets politicized quite a bit, and you know for probably rightly so for a lot of things going on. But on on my level, when my when I get an assistant U.S. attorney that's trauma informed that wants to take really good care of the case and really mm-hmm. good care of the victims, I'm so grateful because that yeah. is something that I don't know how to do. I can't mm-hmm. do. I don't have the power to do. And when I see that they have funding to go after these guys specifically, that are hurting my girls. I'm uh, I'm very grateful that funding is there that allows them to continue to do that good work.
1: Yeah, have they, there's really good and really bad on both sides. There's, but I've worked with some really great DOJ. Uh, bit. Um, so, how do you take care of yourself? How do you? It's it's a heavy subject. It's um you know it's your day to day. It's uh how, how do you how do you do that? for yourself uh, your family
2: that's a, that's a really kind question Um, uh, it's actually the second time i've been asked that today too so i must be on a roll today um <laughs> i uh you know there's there's things that bring me joy there's i i love spending time in um in the mountains in wyoming wyoming's a great state to be able to get lost and explored and lose cell service um mm-hmm. i love spending time with family i love to work out listen to really loud rock music um I love a good meal. I think there's very few things that a good meal can't solve. Mm-hmm. And I honestly love to binge TV shows. That's mm-hmm. kind of the way I get out of my own head. I turn on a show I haven't seen or get lost mm-hmm. in something that that is trending. Um, you know, I, I'm watching a uh, true detective right now and it's so nice that I can just be like, you know, that is their problem. It's not my problem. I'm really enjoying watching right. them solve right. this problem. Uh, right. I love watching sports and, uh, and, you know, there's something, you know, you watch someone like something like Parks and Rec or The Office where it's very low stakes, consequences, mm-hmm. where people are fairly kind to each other. That brings me a lot of joy just because, yeah. I mean, watching a group of people decide the logo of the Harvest Festival, like it happens at Parks and Rec. <laughs> right. That's a very good way to bring you back down to earth, to earth and be like, ah, this is nice. Just a nice yeah. change of pace. That's how I take care yeah. of myself.
1: Good, good, and good. I I'm a know, that's important. Yeah, it's, a, it's important, you know, it's, it's, I'm a big animal person too. So that kind of gets me out of my, my stuff is just to see that uh, there's life beyond just us humans who think we know it all, right? <laughs> so, so sure. um, we're uh, coming down to the end here. So can you tell me just a little bit about your nonprofit and location and uh, how people can find you?
2: Yeah, well, um, my, my nonprofit is called Libertas International. Um, it's spelled L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S. And our website, you can either go to libertasfreedom.org or libertasinternational.org. We have, we own both websites, and, and it's founded, you know, just like we've talked about, to provide um, prevention, uh, intervention, and restoration to survivors of human trafficking across Latin America, as well as here in the United States. Um, we're currently serving 120 survivors around the world. Uh, our oldest survivor is uh, 34 next month, and our youngest survivor in our, oh. in our, in our family is 19 months old. And wow. so we serve a variety of, of individuals. Um, and we're always looking for support because we are not government funded. We are funded just privately by the generosity of good people. And, and it's uh, it's an, it's an honor privilege privilege to be able to serve these survivors. They are the most special thing about me. They are um, the, they deserve everything that I have. And I'm, I'm willing to give them everything that I have to see them, to see them achieve healing and to see them achieve justice uh, in this lifetime.
1: Well, well, you, my friend, are a very bright light in a dark environment. I have to tell you, that's. Uh, I'm really honored to talk to you today. I think that, uh, you know, this is a subject that is tough. It's it's a subject that, is heavy, but yet it's a subject that's so necessary and something that we could try and find ways to, to knock out, which I'm sure is an uphill battle. But um, I really want to thank you for being with me today and. I really appreciate you coming on with me.
2: Thank you, Juliet. I appreciate you for the space and for always giving a voice to my girls. And uh, uh, thank you so much for having me on.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I did want to provide the uh, human trafficking hotline number today. That is 888-373-7888. Or you can text 233-733. So if it's something that uh, you are questioning, don't hesitate to jump on one of those lines and um and and give give some love out there you know um you know there's there's a lot of people need help in all different ways all different stories for some reason the court system is what brings them to me and um and see what brings them to you so thanks for joining me and go out and spread some love
0: thanks for listening to trauma trial and transformation If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at JulietHuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the
1: program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.